0: The moita sabagoa to a to a sama sambotasa. The moita sabagoa to a sama sambotasa. The moita sabagoa So I feel a little bit funny having a computer in the shrine room. Um. Our printer ran out of ink and we didn't get more ink before the retreat started and so I didn't have any way of printing things. So the widget coefficient is a little bit high this evening. So one of the things that for me has been a a solid place to return to again and again and again and again is the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. So, Majjhima Nikaya number 10. In the foundations of mindfulness, are contemplation of body, of feeling, of mind objects, and of mind objects in terms of Dhamma. And certainly, one of the things that I really love about being in the Garden of the Gods and walking around in these wilderness areas is, is that, you know, when I'm scrambling on rocks and riverbeds or Today I was in a new canyon I've never been on before, and it was very steep, and you have to pay very careful attention to your body if you don't. You hurt yourself. And so the physical landscape requires a certain amount of clear um, paying attention to what's going on in the body. And (coughs) so we can know what's happening in our posture, we can pay attention to our breath. We can be aware of daily activities. I've been really delighted with the level of quiet as people have been sweeping and cooking and washing dishes and putting the compost in the compost bin and taking care of various activities. People, there's been a sense of composure and collectedness as people have been going about doing activities, which is really what the intention is. So meditation is not meant to be something that just happens for, you know, thirty minutes or forty-five minutes and then we leave the meditation hall and life is chaos as usual. It's meant to be that there's a continuation from the clarity and the presence and the collectedness and the stillness, a focus into everything. So that there's a, a seamlessness between what we're experiencing in the meditation hall, on the cushion, in formal practice, and walking or scrambling on rocks or finding a tree or uh, going to the toilet or eating our food. There's a seamlessness about it. So, certainly, you know, the contemplation of the body for me is huge because that has been a really important access for me to be able to get a handle on all the other foundations. So the foundation of feeling is, feeling in the Buddhist language is different than the psychological feeling, because this feeling refers to the quality specifically of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, not all of the emotions. And certainly, you can notice, like yesterday, it was like, yuck, you know, you know, I don't want to be here. You know, it's too noisy, it's too this, it's too that, I don't want to be here. So there was a strong feeling of unpleasant for me. I was also delighted to hear there was a strong feeling of pleasant for many of you. But for me, I was having a different experience. And so that quality of pleasant, you know, that tends to be, oh, can I have more, you know, or unpleasant, how do I get rid of this? How do I change this? And we can watch that. And we can also watch neutral, because with neutral feeling we tend to space out. We tend to disappear. We tend to start fantasizing. We tend to start drain- dreaming, We tend to go to sleep. You know. So I have spent many years in a, a kind of the formation of being a drama queen, and the drama queen formation. You know, ordinary experience things that are not intensely pleasant or intensely unpleasant. It's terrifying. It's horrendous. It's it's dreadful. It's worse than death. You know. And so life would oscillate from, like, these extremes. Boom, 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 boom. Because anything, anything that was in that middle range was just like, it felt like I was dying, you know? That if it wasn't extremely something or another, I felt like I was dying. And I don't remember when or how or what it prompted me to start paying attention to neutral. But the reality is is that neutral actually takes up the vast majority of our experience. And that when I pay attention to neutral, life turns into much more color and 3D. And, and then I, I don't have to go into these extremes. The drama thing begins to steady, even out, because I'm feeling more full with just, you know, the contact of the clothing on my skin or, you know, the wetness in my mouth or, you know, the, the sound of... of of the chipmunk moving you know there's just it isn't searching for pleasant and moving away from unpleasant when I wake up to neutral and this has been a huge learning for me and not one that's come easily and and not one that hasn't come with a certain amount of you know the drama queen you know having tantrums you know because neutral is death to the drama queen <laughs> you know notwithstanding neutral has come a little bit more alive and with good effect now one of the things about the foundations of mindfulness that I really love is, is that in the third foundation of mindfulness when we start opening up to mind objects you know feelings of uh, sexual desire or ill will or feeling of exaltation or contraction or feeling of, of joy or feeling of sorrow or sadness You know, one of the things that I really love about the Third Foundations of Mindfulness, the way it configures in the Satipatthana Sutta, is that there's no judgment. It's not like, you know, we're supposed to be kind and loving and patient and wise and energetic, and we're not supposed to be lustful and angry and aggressive and sad and resentful. There's a sense that, you know, it's all here, it's all stuff that can be known in awareness. We don't need to make a judgment about... The good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff and, 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 and create a war between the stuff that we think we should be experiencing and the stuff that we think that we should be getting rid of. And for me, this is like, ah, oh, this is such a relief because I don't know about you, but I had this long list of things that were okay to experience and things that were not okay to experience, and, and there has been a war. You know, I'm trying to organize my internal experience so that I was feeling the things that I thought were on the right list and get rid of the bad list. You know, but you know, it's like I don't have a magic wand where I can go whoop whoop and it just disappears. You know, like um, Pete Seeker was singing Abi Yo You know, the monster, and they had this wand that would go whoop whoop and Yo Yo would disappear. Well, there's no whoop-whoop to make it just go away, you know, to make our sadness go away or our resentment go away or our whatever go away. And so first of all, learning to accept it and learning to watch it, learning to bear with it, and then when we are able to do that, then we are able to have more capacity to be with it in a way which is skillful rather than adding an extra layer of wanting what we want and not wanting what we don't want, which is another layer of desire and aversion on top of the original thing. So the third foundation of mindfulness is like freedom, freedom song, you know? It's like, hallelujah, I'm going home, you know? Because it's like, whatever it is that I'm experiencing is okay, it's welcome, you know, or it's okay. Now the fourth foundation of mindfulness is looking at things in terms of categories of dhamma. And one of the first categories is hindrances. So yesterday I was talking about how we really don't know what we need until we have some measure of collectedness. When our minds are all scattered and all over the space, when we're too dispersed. We, we don't have much resource. We don't have much... We don't know what we need. We don't know what's going on. We don't We don't know where to place our attention. And so one of the number one things that we need to pay attention to in related to our collectedness is the ways in which desire is actually taking hold and hijacking our minds. So in the third foundation of mindfulness, everything is okay. There's no judgment. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we're looking at things with refinement, not with judgment, with discernment. It's different. It's different. Discernment is different than judgment. So when hindrances, you know, the force of greed or the force of ill will or the force of sleepiness or doubt or anxiety and restlessness are, have got a hold on us, then our mind's capacity just to drop in and be present with what is arising is considerably reduced. It's actually quite an advanced practice to be consumed with desire and just notice, wake up, oh, this is just Desire or to be completely overtaken with fear and anxiety, and just to wake up and know this is fear and anxiety, without any judgment, without any wanting, without any not wanting. So for many of us, there's a step that we need to make, which is that these hindrances need to have some degree of measure until the collectedness can gather, so that we can then witness to what they are, And then the witnessing what they are then allows the release of resistance to them. The release of resistance allows the mind to gather. The collecting and the gathering of the mind gives us more capacity and resource to work with what's arising. So there's positive loops and there's negative loops. The positive loops allows attention and awareness to collect which gives us more capacity to work with what's arising, the negative loops takes our anxiety or fear or anger or desire and grabs us and hijacks us and is taking us off on a run. You know, So there's very little capacity to choose where we place our attention because the hijackers are in and they are running. You know, So we don't have much choice when that's going on. So understanding the hindrances and how they operate is really significant, because when we get hijacked by them, it's really unpleasant, and it's very difficult to focus attention any place. It's, you know, the mind's usually obsessed, you know, caught up. So when we look at desire or lust, you know, the classical ways in which we look at desire or lust has to do with the desire for sensual pleasure, the desire for becoming somebody important, or the desire for non-being. Now, sensual pleasure, sexual pleasure, this is anything to do with what's coming through in terms of sight and sound and hearing and smell and taste taste and touch, and even particular thoughts that are pleasing, right? So this whole realm of sensuality is, is, is that, you know, when we want to have an adventure, when we want to see something beautiful, when we want to have a taste that we want to have a certain kind of food, when we want, you know, this, this wanting that, that configures itself through any of the gates, this is the kind of wanting that comes through sensual pleasure. And we can watch. There's a lot of that that we experience. And certainly our society is based on a, an economy that kind of um, profits around that. You know? That, you know, sensual pleasure is really the optimum kind of pleasure that we can look out for. And so we can watch and see whether we're being obsessed or taken over by it. Now, one of the things that has been really a fascinating contemplation for me, he says, is, "Is that in the in the Buddhist scriptures when they talk about sexual desire, the common way of bringing antidotes to sexual desire that is out of control is to contemplate the 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 nature of the physical body. You know, to look at the the body is made of skin and bones and flesh and tendons and it's got liver and spleen and lungs and brain and it's got." Um, you know, undigested food, and it's got urine and excrement, it's got all of these things. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, sexual desire very rarely arises in response to stimulation of visual contact. It's usually emotional closeness or the hunger to want to have emotional connection. And so the physical desire to be sexually intimate is not triggered by me visually. And I don't know, but I'm pretty sure or I'm suspecting, imagining that this is a gender thing. For men, visually, they're much more stimulated than for women. I think women were much more stimulated through connection, through relationship, through the possibility of being emotionally close. So, you know, we can dismantle our bodies till the cows come home. It doesn't actually have anything to do with our hunger to be emotionally close. And so when we're looking at our hunger to be emotionally close as the root cause of our sexual desire, then we need to bring something that actually touches that rather than something that doesn't. And so one of the things that has been really fascinating for me about being a Buddhist nun in a tradition which has been mainly through um, monks or men as teachers, is to learn how to understand the context that the teachings were given and to be able to listen to my own experience and say, does this apply to me or not? Not in a way where I dismiss the teachings, but as a way where I'm actually examining and honoring my own experience. So that's been a big one looking at sexual desire and how that arises. And I want to go around and come back to that because it's actually huge. It's not small. It's huge. And not just because we are phenomenally sexy, lustful creatures, which we can be, but because our capacity to engage in emotional connection often comes through our sexuality. And when we don't have that, um, when there's lack in that area, then it surfaces as sexual desire when one is actually presenting is the need for very deep and intimate connection. I want to touch that. I want to come back to it. Because it's, it's actually very significant. So, ill will is this kind of like, yuck, you know, get this out of here. Get this out of my face. Get this away. Get it out of here. Kill it. Destroy it. Just get it away from me, you know? And we can experience that in, in, in small kinds of ways. You know, we can experience that. We don't like the smell. We don't like the smell of the porta potty I don't like the cigarette smell. I don't like the smell of the diesel engine when he, he starts the truck up. I don't, like the, I don't like the sound of the motorcycles. It drives me nuts, you know. And I can go on to a total rant about motorcycles, you know. And, and you know, so there's all kinds of things where my system gets agitated and there's this sense of, I don't want this. You know, I don't want this. And so whether it's a small thing or a big thing or like a rageful thing, we can notice that energy of pushing and watching what it feels like. Okay. Now, certainly in in the Buddha's teachings, there's there's nothing that I have ever seen in any of the Buddha's teachings that says that there's a wholesome place for anger. Now, my personal experience is that there's a wholesome place for anger. (laughs) And one of the ways that there's a wholesome place for anger is if if somebody's been stepping on your boundaries and your immediate response is no, then that's actually a protection. It's actually not the intention to harm, but the intention to protect. And that's wholesome. Now, where we need to be careful is is that we're not using the energy of anger, which has a harmful component, in order to assert the boundaries. But the boundary is the boundary to protect. And, again, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience as a woman is is that my conditioning is is that the more that I please people and placate them and, and, and make them feel okay, then the safer I am. And so my ability to negotiate my own boundaries has been a long-standing learning. It has not been easy. And really to get this fierce, <laughs> you know, to rise it and to express it, is has been terrifying, you know, totally terrifying. And I remember, you know, there was a situation that happened. Oh my goodness, there was another nightmare that had happened in the monastery. There seems to be forever nightmares happening in the monastery. There was another nightmare that had happened in the monastery, and I was furious. I was so furious. Oh, my goodness. I was so furious. And I went on a three-month retreat in Switzerland. And I was sitting with all of this. And there was a time when this anger was bubbling up inside of me. And, you know, I I couldn't just sit inside with it. So I decided I was going to go outside into something just totally radical. This was my total radical thing I was going to do. So I was in Switzerland. I was in the mountains. It was midnight. It was 15 degrees below zero. And I went and I took some incense and some candles and I made a sacred space. And I said, you know, may this be for the benefit of all beings. And I took some rocks and I threw them and I cursed. And that was like my totally radical thing. Because for me, up to that point, to have access and actually express anger was completely terrifying. Because my relationship with anger was totally twisted up, you know. It was totally terrifying to know it, to own it, to express it, to have it. And so just to do something as simple as throw rocks and curse, I was was half positive that the earth was going to swallow me up, you know. It didn't. I survived. In fact, I felt much better afterwards. But it was it's a long process for that kind of twist to learn how to feel the safety and to feel it to know it to allow it, and then to release it in a way where nobody's going to get harmed you know and so for people like myself where i have I have stuffed it you know stuffed it in my bones and my immune system and my you know I've stuffed it, then for me to learn how to um, To hold it, to know it, to name it, and to release it is a long learning. For other people who are good at just lashing out, you know, who are quick witted and sharp tongued, and in a second they just lash out, they need the opposite. They need how to contain, how to let that energy come and, you know, and do what it does, but to not let it out. They need the training and the opposite. And when I was in the monastery, I was a work nun in the workshop, and one of the monks built this amazing wood-burning stove, which was like six and a half feet tall with this huge lid that he had welded so that you could open it up and just take a trash can and dump, you know, stuff in it. And I would take um, paint thinner and keep it when I'd clean the brushes, and I'd save all of the scraps and then we had trunks that were four feet high and i would take a whole trash can full of trash and four feet high logs and i'd take the paint thinner throw it in and torch it with a match and the whole thing it would it would vibrate and shake and it would turn red hot and there was like this monster vibrating and shaking But the thing was built strong enough so that it didn't crack open and the fire didn't spill out on the floor, which is like there was never any chance where the building was going to burn down. And when anger is released, it's discharged without any conscious awareness of what's happening. Terrible harm can happen. Just really terrible harm can happen. And certainly, you know, all of us have known what it's like to be blasted by somebody's anger. And how dismantling, dysregulating, how totally damaging it can be. It can take a really long time to recover trust when that happens. So if our tendency is to lash out, then we need to practice containing, holding, and letting that energy move through our body without discharging it verbally or physically. And just let it do what it does until it cools down. So anger, acting from anger, is harmful and it's not encouraged. But the place where the Buddhist teaching does not speak about is the way in which anger can arise as a protective instinct, as a protective impulse, and that needs to be discerned out. What need is not being met here? And how is it that I can express my needs in a way where I don't need to be vicious? But I need to be very clear. And, you know, for me, this is huge learning. It's taken me a long time to be able to understand that when I'm feeling frustrated or angry or resentful, sometimes what's happening is a need is not being met. And I need to look for that. And then and then, and then advocate for myself. Speak up. So the other hindrances that are present also is... Um, Restlessness, anxiety, worry, sleeply, sleepiness, dullness, doubt, and uncertainty. Um, when, when we're looking at sleepiness or sloth and torpor, certainly one of the most important factors about the increase of this is the attention, the, in the unwise attention to feeling sleepy and dull. So, you know, you can sometimes notice that in the morning time, you know, sometimes you come and you're sleepy. And because everyone is sitting still, we think that we're just supposed to sit still. And so the mind can be very dull and sinking, and we're just sitting still because everyone is sitting still. And we're not actually working very skillfully with what's arising. Now, we have an implicit assumption that because everyone's sitting, we're supposed to be sitting, which is incorrect. We're supposed to be attending wisely to what's arising, and so if our sitting is actually not conducive for us, it's totally acceptable to stand up quietly and to work with standing posture rather than just sitting posture. We can open our eyes, we can pull our earlobes, we can raise our hands over our head, we can take deep breaths, you can focus on the candles, you can imagine the sun, and if you're still falling asleep, you can go outside and walk outside in the fresh air, which will most likely, wake you up because in the mornings it's been cool. So, we are encouraged to work with it rather than just to fall into it. Now, of course, um, one of the things that we need to also be att- attentive to is why are we why are we sleepy? You know, and it it is there's you know there might be. Um, we didn't sleep well that night, or we might be getting a cold, there might be some like bubbles of stress or trauma that's emerging in our system, there might be some kind of a a deep insight that is surfacing about like a question about our fundamental sense of who we are. And with each of these different things that can actually manifest as sleepiness, they require different remedies. So this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of a practice where, just because it's sleepiness, there's just one response to it. What's needed is to develop the discernment to try and begin to figure out where is it coming from. And, you know, if we're exhausted, if we're sick, that usually we need to rest. If there's a trauma that's arising or some kind of a thing that's an existential question, you know, for me, when that's the case, what I need to do is to give myself carte blanche to rest as much as possible, and then just to keep affirming that I have the resource to deal with whatever is that's arising for me, you know. And so with each different kind of cause of sleepiness requires a different response. But another thing that's really important with each of these hindrances is, is, is that noble friendship is one of the consistent ingredients that is um, really supportive. This is hanging out with good friends, you know, coming and talking with me. And when we're not in noble silence, speaking with each other, speaking with other people who are practitioners about what's going on. It's a really skillful and universal way of dealing with all of this stuff. In terms of conditions that are conducive to the abandonment of restlessness and remorse, you know, one of the classic ways of looking at that is to is to have confidence in, and familiarity with what the Buddha's teachings are, and to ask questions about them, and also to have a sense of familiarity and an uprightness with our precepts. Because, you know, certainly when we are feeling restful, restless and remorseful because we've done something that we regret, then one of the ways of of resolving that is to be careful not to do that again. You know, not to do stuff that we regret again, or to make amends if that's coming up and our minds are churning about it. Now, stuff that's in the ancient past that keeps coming up again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And again then sometimes what we need to do is forgiveness practice for ourselves, or making amends practice, because it's, 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 it's over. We can't redo that. But, you know, but certainly that can help us you know, understand that when we transgress in this particular way that it can have a, an agitating effect on the system. And that can help us steer clear in terms of, of, of wanting to be careful when we have choices. Certainly when we're feeling restless and, uh, you know, it's helpful hanging out with people that are calm. It's not helpful hanging out with people who are agitated. And again, you know, spending time with noble friends. When restlessness and anxiety are arising from unspecified sources, there's like a kind of nonspecific anxiety that's arising, unknown fears, you know, or there's just anxiety and there's no thing in particular that's causing it, it's just present, you know, It's there's a really strong tendency for it then what's really helpful is to focus one's attention in what is steady and stable, where one's confident, and to bring one's attention into places of the body that are feeling steady and and calm and pleasant. And, you know, sometimes when there's anxiety in the system, something as simple as just like rubbing your hand on your tummy and, you know, stroking your head and letting these just very soothing, calming sensations, or rubbing your heart, rubbing your heart and holding your tummy, and letting the warmth of your heart, paying attention to the sensations of warmth at, at, the, at the heart and the abdomen, can h- help shift the, the loops of anxiety and bring one into a place where there's more settledness and more, more calm. And again, with the doubt and uncertainty, you know, this has to do with the doubt that, 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 um, that, that there is the way, that there is a possibility to release ourselves from, from suffering. And again, having familiarity with teachings and asking questions about them, having a sense of uprightness and skill in our integrity, having clear resolve. These are all things that help us get through these patches of uncertainty and doubt. And again, noble friendship and suitable conversation. So this doubt that is talked about in terms of the hindrances with the practice is doubt that's about the the efficacy of the practice. It's not doubt about what we're going to wear or or, you know, whether we're going to go to the garden of the gods or Red Rocks open space or you know whether we have 2 spoons of yogurt or 1 spoon of blueberries it's it's that you know and yet you know one of the things that was interesting for me because somehow in my in my mind i never imagined that the buddha i never imagined that the buddha had doubt but in the in the classic story of his awakening you know the whole host of mara came to tempt him first came sensual desire and then came Ill will, and then the last one was was doubt, and doubt came and said, "You know, who do you think you are to be completely free from suffering? You know, who are you to be completely enlightened?" And at that point, and I love this, you know, the Buddha that that mudra, that image of him touching the earth. So he's just standing still, touching the earth, and he evokes the Gaia, the 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 earth, the deva of the earth, to bear witness to the accumulated goodness of his life. So he didn't say, you know, I did it all myself. He evokes the witness of the earth as a way of bringing testimony to his accumulated goodness. And for me, that's another reason why, for me, the the practice with our bodies and our practice with the land is so important. Because it can remind us of our own goodness when we don't have easy access to it ourselves, And that's really critical. But you see, the thing is with the Buddha is is, is that, you know, I wonder how many of us, you know, our fundamental doubt is, is whether we're going to be completely enlightened or not. You know, for many of us, our doubt is like, you know, are we, do we have a right to exist? Is it safe to speak up? Is it uh, okay for me to be here? Um, do I have a right to manifest the, the m- m- who I am? You know. So this kind of the doubts that we experience are usually of a completely different order of magnitude than the doubt that was portrayed that the Buddha had of the sense of, you know, is it possible to be completely free from all traces of suffering? And so when this is the kind of stuff that we're dealing with, you know, when we have this feeling that, that fundamentally there's something wrong with us, or that fundamentally there's something in us that's bad, or that intrinsically, you know, the Buddha's teachings might be good for everybody else, but they can't possibly apply to me because there's something missing, you know? I was born with a missing bit. And I can't, it's not for me to be completely free from suffering. I am, I am, I have to struggle with, with all of the sense of lack that I have until I can feel sufficient so that I can actually then be able to apply the teachings. And if this is any kinds of familiarity of thoughts or of thought patterns that we have, then what we need to do is we need to remember. That the nature of the mind is, is that it's luminous, it's radiant, it's undefiled, it's pervasive, it's entire. There isn't anything in the nature of the mind's luminous nature that is insufficient, that is wrong, that is bad, that is incapable of knowing itself. And so we need to deliberately bring our attention to the quality of what the awakened mind is. Now, I want to talk for a moment about... In the chanting that we do, there's three kinds of chanting. There's liturgical chanting, there's sutta chanting, and there's mantra chanting. Liturgical chanting is really singing the praises of the qualities of the awakened mind, the truth, and the sangha. And one of the reasons for singing the praises of the awakened mind is not so that we worship the Buddha as an external entity, but we can remember the qualities of awakening, which are innate. And that these are actually what happens when our practice gets stronger, is that we get access to this. So the liturgical chanting is meant to brighten our mind's capacity to remember. This is radiant, luminous, quality of awakening is something that we all have. Now, some have problems with the word Lord and God and all of that, and I'm there with you, actually. (laughs) I would like to change the word so that it's not so um, agitating, because to me those, those words don't work for me at all. But, you know, celebrating and rejoicing in the luminous quality of the mind, that's not a different mind than the mind that we have. So that's part of the reason why the liturgical chanting is actually so significant, so that we can remember that. Okay. But, you know, one of the things that has been a strong part of my own practice is this movement between understanding the difference between observing what's arising and interacting and engaging with things. Now, as a meditation practitioner, the strong encouragement is to observe what's arising. After doing that for 20 years and realizing that there were still places where I was stuck, then I engaged with all kinds of different therapeutic practices that helped me look at what was arising from a developmental perspective. And what I've come to understand is that these are two parallel paths. They're not mutually exclusive. And so if what is arising is uh, a structure that's related to an early childhood uh, um, way of perceiving the world based on a sense of lack or a sense of insufficiency or a sense of there's not enough safety or there's not enough support or there's not enough... um, uh, it's not okay to feel what I'm feeling, then rather than just observe this as an arising in the mind, then what I have learned and needed to do was to engage with that with a counterbalancing attitude that is healing. It's not observing. The observing is to recognize what's happening. And the counterbalancing attitude begins to start changing that structure so that there is the the care, the kindness, the support, the attunement that, that maybe was not present when I needed it to be. And so in this way, some of the doubt that we experience, some of the desire that we experience, some of the frustration and anger we experience is not only just a hindrance, It's the direct result of these character structures, these early structures manifesting, crying for the right kind of attention. And so when we develop the discernment to be able to understand what's the difference between like rage from an adult mind that's just gone off and rage from a child that is needing something and doesn't know how to ask for what it needs. Okay, As an adult, it's not helpful to let this rage loose. As a child, what we need to do, if that part is manifesting, we need to learn how to interpret the frustration, the tantrum, the rage, as a need is not being met and bring the wisdom to be able to know, to name, to articulate, to reframe, and to address what is not being met. So the hindrances on a Buddhist perspective are really clear, that we need to keep them from acting out. From a developmental perspective, every single one of them often is connected to some kind of very significant need that needs to be attended to. And so one of the things that happens is is, is that once we become adolescent and we're sexually mature, our capacity to engage with another sexually is one of the easiest ways that we can be in intimate contact. And if as children we lacked intimate contact, then it's not at all uncommon to have very strong craving for sex. Either that or very strong aversion to sex. And it doesn't have to do with the sex. It's the sex is a way in which we can have the possibility of having that intimate contact. Well, if we're thinking, I shouldn't be having these fantasies, I shouldn't be having these fantasies, I shouldn't be having these fantasies, it doesn't help. But if there's some capacity to discern, the fantasy is becoming, because of a hunger to be met emotionally, then we have the capacity to attend to that in a way which is absolutely skillful and completely in keeping with what we're doing here on this retreat. So the discernment that's needed is to look at the hindrances, not just as hindrances which need to be understood and kept in abeyance, but to understand where they are coming from. And when they're coming from this character development, it needs a totally different response. And that takes discernment, to be able to differentiate. And I have never, ever heard anybody give a Dharma talk that talks about this. Never! And it's been a very strong part of my practice to learn how to figure this out, you know? And the more I was discerning about where this stuff was coming from, then the faster it would resolve. But, you know, it would make sense that if what's coming is coming from a very young child experience and I'm using adult language and models and methods to deal with it, it's not going to be very effective. And so, you know, I could be stompy and sulky and pissy for a long time because all of my remedies are not actually touching the root. I've completely missed what's going on. You know, But if I can see that what's actually happening is, is there's some really deep need that I don't have the voice to express or even to acknowledge, because the consciousness of what I'm navigating is too young to be able to formulate it in terms of words and needs, then another part of me needs to actually interfere, engage, and act as the bridge to pick up the signs, the signals of what's going on in my body, be able to interpret that, and then engage with that in a way which is kind, which is wise, which is appropriate, which is loving, which is attuned, which is responsive. It's very sophisticated practice. It's not at all simple. But it is possible to learn to do, particularly when you have had the experience of having some support doing it. And for me, it's made all the difference, you know? So, um, this is my reflection for this evening. And this is more than enough for tonight. So, thank you. Let's get all the widgets to stop.